Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. The Athletic. If you're not yet a subscriber to The Athletic, now's the time with our best offer ever. Sign up today and you'll pay just £1 a month for the next six months, giving you unrivaled insight and analysis of everything Euro 2020 and taking you well into the new Premier League season two. The Athletic is the only place you can read pieces by award-winning writers like Michael Cox, Rafa Honigstein, Amy Lawrence and Daniel Taylor. And when you subscribe, you'll also get ad-free versions of all of The Athletic's podcasts from across its audio network. Head to theathletic.com slash totally and become a subscriber today for six quid until the end of the year. That's theathletic.com slash totally. Good afternoon, passengers. This is a pre-boarding announcement for flight 89. Please have your boarding pass and identification ready. Baku, Sevilla, Amsterdam, Glasgow, München, Sankt Petersburg, Bucharest, Budapest, Copenhagen, Roma, London. Totally football show at the Euros. Matt's humiliated as France edged Germany. Record-breaking Ronaldo proves you don't need coke to get high in the all-time goal-scoring charts. Plus, Wednesday's action, we find out if dark horses are actually prized turkeys. Finland could be rushing through to the last 16. And Mancini's men look to roll the Swiss. This is the Totally Football Show in association with Paddy Power. Hello there, listener. Hope you're well. Yeah, I'm pretty good, thanks. Uh, It's me, Matt Davis-Adams, back again. I am joined by fulfilling the athletic quota. It's the marvellous Adam Crafton. Hi, Adam. Hello, how are you? Yeah, good, thanks. Not not too bad, not too bad. Uh, Also, alongside Adam, token Welshman, Tom Williams. How are you doing, Tom? Uh, Hi, Matt. Uh, Very well, thanks. How are you? Yeah, can't complain. I thought I'd ask just in case things had evolved (laughs) since Adam asked you. You know, you can never know. You can never ask too many times. It's convention as well, isn't it? Because it, it, it that implies that we haven't been speaking at all before we switch the mics on and common courtesy would dictate that we would all ask each other how we all are. But hey, come on. Yeah, we're all fine. That's the main thing. Let's get straight to France against Germany. Group F finally getting underway today. And this was the one that we've all been looking forward to. The first proper heavyweight bout of the finals. This is the Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Listen ad-free on the Athletic app and discover bonus content by following the Athletic UK Audio Plus on Apple Podcasts. It went the way of the world champions. France getting the dub yet by a goal to nil in Munich and an absolutely vintage own goal as well. Surely few more satisfying things in football than seeing a defender shinning across into the roof of his own net. De l'autre côté, là-bas, c'est un bon ballon. Lucas Hernandez, a frappe qui se transforme en centre. Et but contre son camp de Mats Hummels. L'ouverture du score dans ce choc, le premier de cet Euro 2020. Super Clive Tilsley told us that was the third own goal of the week. Never been more than that at a single European Championships. Tom, you're our resident Francophile. Uh, what did you make of your other boys' performance here? I thought France was simultaneously really impressive in certain ways and also quite flaky. Uh, I think they were deserved winners, but I didn't think they defended with a huge amount of composure. There was definitely a period in the start of the second half where they looked a little bit rattled and they weren't keeping Germany at arm's length at that point. They were basically camped just inside their own 18-yard box and you know you had Varane and Conte and Pavard and Hernandez flinging themselves in in front of uh, you know in front of shots and, and attempted crosses and things like that. I mean it was it was in many ways a fairly typical uh, Didier Deschamps performance. I mean France had something like thirty eight percent of possession, only one shot, um, and yet their technical quality um, was was really impressive. So yeah, I mean I think they. I think they confirmed why they are, uh, you know, most people's pre-tournament favourites. I thought some of their football was sensational. I thought some of Pogba's uh, passing uh, and moving with the ball was brilliant. You know, Mbappe 
was fantastic. Griezmann was incredible. You know, what a shift. Uh, but I think they also showed that they, they can be got at in certain ways. So perhaps a little bit of hope for their, um, for their rivals as well. Adam, I'm with you. I thought Germany deserved the point here. A little bit unlucky um, to be going home without any. Yeah, I mean, even in the first half where, you know, I think France played their much better football in the first half, but I still felt Germany, you know, they clearly had a system and a style of play and you could sort of see what they were trying to do. The problem was they just didn't have, you know, that presence up front that made you ever believe that Germany were going to score a goal. Um, And that was, I think that was sort of the story of the night, the feeling that France could at any point score a goal, even though they didn't have that much of the ball. And even though Germany had vast quantities of the ball in the second half in particular never really felt like France were on the verge of, of being broken down and France just seemed like a team that are very very comfortable playing without the ball you know they've gone through that process at the World Cup a couple of years ago and sometimes you know you see those names on the team sheet Pogba, Griezmann, Benzema and Mbappe and you think it's just going to be this exhibition like Spain at uh, Euro 2012 and they're just not that that type of team or Didier Deschamps doesn't seem to want them to be that type of team so I always come away a little bit underwhelmed but you come away also exhilarated by just certain moments they produce It was an interesting line in, in the commentary from, from Clive Tildesley and he was wondering why France was sitting as deep as they were at certain times and it it called to mind something that Deschamps has said a few times since the World Cup I mean he was asked quite a few times you know why didn't France try and impose themselves more uh, on their opponents during that tournament. Why didn't they play a little bit further up the pitch? And he said that what happened during the course of the 2018 World Cup was that those players realised they felt more comfortable defending uh, deep than they did imposing themselves on the game. And, and when Deshaun talks about it, he speaks about it as as if it's something that... It, it was actually beyond his control that there were games where he wanted France to play a little bit higher up the pitch, but they felt they drew strength from playing in, in that sort of way. And I think we, we saw some signs of that uh, tonight. I mean, they were very close to getting a second goal. You know, Mbappe's denied a, what would have been a beautiful goal uh, by an offside. Again, Benzema is, is denied what would have been, uh, you know, uh, his his first goal since his recall by an offside flag again. So talking, you know, fine margins here. Um, but yeah, that that is the sort of default position with this group of players have the ability to play fantastic football. And we saw glimpses of that, but they're quite happy being under the cosh. And, and every time someone successfully blocks a shot or, or makes a last gasp intervention, they draw strength from that. And it's become you know a really fundamental part of their identity as a team. Those two disallowed goals, Adam, beautiful as they were, rightfully disallowed, but also quickly disallowed. I feel like VAR in the European Championships works a lot better than it does in the Premier League. Yeah, it all just seems a little bit smoother, a bit faster. Um, we don't, we're not having to endure those lines that we see in the Premier League, where um, I think supporters, and when I say supporters, I mean me, um, get very fed up very, very quickly. Um, when to the naked eye, it looks like it's onside or it looks like it's offside and we're being told something else but by the VAR hub. So uh, I think it's been good so far. I think, you know, the calls that were made tonight, they also matched up with the replays that we saw. So it feels like there's credibility to the process, which it hasn't always felt like there has been in the Premier League. So I think, yeah, so far so good from a refereeing perspective. And also the games have seemed to flow pretty well as well. The refs haven't really intervened as much as maybe you'd expect in sort of high-profile competitions. There's been a really good flow. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I can't really think of a refereeing mistake in the competition so far. A couple of concerning moments, though. Uh, firstly, the protesting parachutist who took out the spider cam and nearly everybody else before the match. Um, but also, Tom, Benjamin Pavard goes down with what looks like a fairly serious blow to the head. But it's OK because he gets a squirt of water down the back of his neck. So... Yeah, yeah, that didn't look great. And um, I mean, in the build-up to the game, ITV had, had shown uh, footage of you know the, the famous uh, assault by Tony Schumacher on Patrick Battiston at, at the 1982 World Cup, and it felt like Robin Gosens was doing his best uh, attempt at, at recreating it. And and you you know you you got the impression that that Pavar was was pretty much cold when he hit the ground. I mean, he landed flat on his face, and of course, you know we we now. Uh, you know, we, we now live in an age where there are much more clearly, you know, delineated concussion protocols. And, you know, I wouldn't want to 
second guess a doctor we we don't know what you know what sort of conversation happened between the um the france medical staff and, and pavar but it, it yeah it didn't look good at the very least we spoke about germany's attack maybe lacking a little bite uh maybe tony rudiger should have played up front tom was it a nibble was it a bite was it just classic rudiger housery uh, I mean, it, it did look a bit like a bite. The, the sort of super slow-mo replay that ITV played did appear to show Nashers being bad uh, and the kind of combination of pain and shock um, by way of reaction from Pogba that you would associate with being bitten. Um, so, yeah, probably one to keep an eye on uh, in the coming days. Do you think they will revisit that, Adam? I would think they would have to look at it. Um, it didn't seem a sort of Luis Suarez style munch, but that's a very high bar um, or low <laughs> bar. Um, it seemed a bit more like a love bite um, from Rudiger. It was just very weird. I, I find I find these bites so weird. Like I mean, I've never been on a football pitch and been like marking someone, thinking, you know, what I'm going to do now. I'm going to bite you. It's just totally bizarre to me. So, yeah, I would expect it would be revisited. But again, it was like very, very slow-mo footage. And I think it will probably depend what Pogba says. If Pogba comes out and says, I didn't feel anything, that might just be the end of it, really. So France looking good for a place in the last 16. Temptation, I guess, Adam, as we wrap up this game is to say that, well, we saw enough from Germany there to think that even if it's his third place, they'll go through. But if you listen to Karl Anker, he doesn't think third place will get you through this group. It puts a lot of pressure on their game against Portugal, for sure. And I think, you know, watching the Portugal game today, I didn't see a huge amount in the first 80 minutes or so that Germany should be terrified by but no, certainly they need to find a greater attacking edge because today they never they did not look like scoring as well as they kept the ball. It was all just a bit flat. Um, it seems like you know I don't think it was anything like previous recent competitions where they've looked like a team that as a group the spirits fallen apart and at the end of a cycle. Today I just thought they were just missing that final bit in the final third. If it was if it was a club team, you'd be saying they need to go out and buy a centre forward. Um, obviously, you can't do that as an international team. Um, but but that that was the sense I had watching them. I didn't think there was anything fundamentally wrong with them at all. But we, I think what we also know is they were allowed to play in that way because France wanted them to. France wanted them to have the ball. So it'll be interesting with Portugal whether, you know, I think Portugal probably have more ball players, more players that want to get on it. So it'll be interesting to see how Germany adapt to that on Saturday. Well, that game was the headline act in Group F, but there was another match played in that section. We'll discuss it next. Euros are here, and you'd better make the most of them because they only come around every four, five years. So if your bookie isn't making you feel special, then maybe it's time to find a new one. Yep, not so much carpe diem as carpa diem. Yeah? If the grass is greener on the other side... Come and play on it. If your bookie's not giving you the best rewards, switch and you'll get a completely free £5 bet builder on all England's group games. Paddy Power. Pretty much bet builder bets only. Min 2 plus legs online exclusive. Must have previously deposited to avail. T's and C's apply. 18 plus begambleaware.org. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. This is the Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Cristiano, attention, Portugal! Cristiano, para o 3-0! It took Portugal a while, but eventually they recorded a 3-0 win over Hungary at a pack Pushkas Arena, Rafael Guerrero broke the deadlock six minutes from time before certified non-coke addict Cristiano Ronaldo struck twice, even later on. A big run now up to 11 goals at European Championship Finals, overtaking Michel Platini's record. Now, the devastating combination of wonky internet and toddler bedtime put pay to my hopes of watching this live. So, Tom, at the risk of being labelled a poor man's Craig David, can you fill me in? 
<laughs> yeah, I mean, a bit of a slow burner, as the um, as the scoring pattern suggests. I thought Hungary did really well. They had a really clear, clear game plan. Uh, it was a, a 5-3-2. They weren't too deep. You know, they left a little bit of space in behind. So, you know, they, they weren't sort of cowering in fear on the edge of their own penalty area. They had two players up front and they were you know looking to break out whenever they could. Uh, it was the first game of the tournament in front of a full house. Hungary, obviously playing at home at the Puskas Arena in, in Budapest. And I, it felt like the most the most physical game that we'd had so far. Um, you know, you, you kind of felt the, um, the, uh, the, the impact of the crowd uh, on, you know, the sorts of challenges that were flying in. And, and Portugal looked quite toothless um, right up until the end of the game. And what really stood out for me was just the lack of, um, the lack of real pace in that Portugal front line. I mean, lots of very talented players, but Bernardo Silva, Cristiano Ronaldo, Bruno Fernandes are not quick. They're not sprinters. Diogo Jota is a little bit quicker, but he's not, you know, a, a thoroughbred. And you, you've got a lot of players in that Portugal front line who like the ball into feet. They either want to be attacking a ball in the penalty area or they just want the ball played into feet. And there was a lot of praise for the impact that Renato Sanchez had when he came on. But I thought that the player who really changed things for Portugal was Rafa Silva, Benfica winger. He was what he was probably the only player who was constantly willing to run in behind, and it was a run in behind down the inside right channel from him that led to Rafael Guerrero's opener. He plays the cutback. He then runs in behind again. Rafa Silva wins the penalty uh, that Ronaldo scores, and then he set up Ronaldo's third at the end when Hungary had basically downed tools. Uh, so yeah, I mean Portugal kind of getting off the hook uh, a little bit. With you know, with that late flurry of goals, I mean they they were you know they were deserved winners. They dominated the game pretty much from start to finish, and I'm not sure that they will need to radically rethink their approach uh, going into their next two games. But it, yeah, th- there was something a little bit one paced about about their attack. You wonder whether you know had had Joao Felix started or, or been involved at some point that that might have um, that might have been different. But yeah, I mean they were they were worthy winners in the end. Yeah, plenty to come off the bench for them as well. Hungry-wise, Adam, is it too simplistic to say that they were workmanlike and just tired towards the end? And, and have they missed their best shot at, at getting something from this group by by not seeing it out here? It is simplistic, but I think it's true. Um, they, you know, they worked hard. They were committed. It felt a little bit like you know one of those FA Cup away games where a really good team goes away from home against a decent Championship team and. That they, you know, they work really hard for seventy-five minutes. Then something goes against them, and then they fall apart. What what I was quite interested in is is how that affects Hungary for the next two games because it felt like if they were going to get something, it had to be riding a bit of a wave. And you know, on, particularly on the first, I think Portugal will probably have it harder against them than France or Germany will, just because it was the first game, fans back in the stadium, a real sense of occasion. Um, I mean, they had a goal disallowed as well for offside just a few minutes before. Portugal took the lead so you know they had their chances and I thought second half they were very much in the game and going into the last 25 minutes it wasn't an easy game to call it didn't Portugal weren't creating chance after chance essentially what Tom says about you know runners in behind you would think Diego Jota would have the ability to do that Bruno Fernandes as well you know he he does have you know if he's fit enough has the energy to, to make those runs as well um, but you just didn't see it today and I don't know whether it was just a little bit perhaps complacency, and then the game becomes a bit stodgy and it becomes all a bit more difficult than they thought it was going to be. And then you get the memories of, you know, the fact they barely ever win group games um, start coming back. So I think it was a big relief for Portugal. And it also just elevate, uh, sorry, lifts the pressure off Saturday's game a little bit and puts them into a decent position. Yeah, it means that they've equaled the number of 90-minute wins they managed in their victorious Euro 2016 campaign to... Uh, as Adam says, Group F resumes on Saturday. Hungary against France is the early game. Then it's Portugal versus Germany. Yes, Adam. On the Cristiano Ronaldo Coke water incident, <laughs> um, which is one of my favourite moments of the championship so far, where he sits down at the press conference with Coca-Cola bottles presented in front of him, presumably as a sponsor of, of the tournament. Um, and he moves them performatively out of the way and raises up uh, a bottle of water and says, Agua. But the reason that I want to make the point about this is that my grandmother, for most of the years of my life, has made this huge point at any family dinner that anyone who drinks Coke should be drinking water. Um, and she's therefore written into our family WhatsApp group today, having seen this clip on Twitter, with the message, 
I have the highest respect for him. I would pay towards the fine myself if some of my family who drink <laughs> Coke Cola would listen. Two thumbs up emojis. <laughs> uh, um, so we well, have funny. a very happy nan tonight. <laughs> funny enough, my thoughts immediately turned to Michael Cox of this parish, who absolutely loves Coca-Cola more than any adult human being I've ever met. So I suspect his reaction would have been quite the opposite. <laughs> yeah, it feels like a, a kind of a good gesture from Ronaldo, but I think we fast forward to six months and he's doing the uh, the Pepsi commercial and, and we might get the real reason behind, um, behind why he was so dismissive of Coca-Cola. Uh, so that was a, a little bit of Euro news-ish that broke today. A couple of other pieces to note. Marko Arnautovic update. UEFA has appointed an ethics and disciplinary inspector to investigate the Austria striker's reaction to his goal against North Macedonia on Sunday. UEFA disciplinary rules call for a minimum 10-match ban for insults based on race or ethnic origin. Austria's next games against the Netherlands on Thursday, so expect the verdict to arrive sometime within five years of that match. Zing. Another little bit of news. Dean Henderson out of the England squad. Aaron Ramsdale in. Adam, this is a bit of a worry for me. England have now got two keepers who've been relegated as backups to the number one who's had a shaky season. Yeah, and and you half wonder. I mean, I know some nations have like two or three goalkeepers in reserve to the to the reserves, like on standby being told to keep fit. I, I mean, I do wonder if Joe Hart is just in his back garden um, <laughs> making saves with a with a personal trainer this week. Yeah, it is a concern. And, you know, I don't think Jordan Pickford's the best goalkeeper um, in the world. And I'd probably have had Nick Pope ahead of him personally. Um, So you've lost Nick Pope, you've lost Dean Henderson, Pickford's there. Um, You always have a slight worry with Pickford just because of how explosive he can be as a goalkeeper. And he sort of gets himself into tangles and situations. Um, Liverpool fans would probably describe it differently and can be very, very aggressive in, in how he approaches attackers. So... Yeah, that is a concern. But I, yeah, Sam Johnson's a good goalkeeper. I think he's probably ahead of Ramsdale. But look, you know, if we get to the Euros final and Sam Johnston has to go in goal, then it'll just be you know, a fantastic story when Sam Johnston uh, makes the crucial save that wins England the European Championship. <laughs> Lovely optimism. Um, while we're on England, over on our daily-ish England show, Jack Pitbrook, Flo Lloyd-Hughes and stylishness as David Priest have been doing an England Q&A. So if you want to know why G-South is so besotted with Kieran Trippier, if England will ever try a 3-4-3 or which member of the squad is reading a Jilly Cooper bonk buster, just search The England Show wherever you get your pods or listen ad-free on The Athletic. OK, we'll look ahead to Wednesday's trio of games after this. We're sponsored for this episode of the Totally Football Show by Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform helping you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify's there to help you grow. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify has got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, which is up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. Plus, you can sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. And what's more, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 support is there to help your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Now, because you listen to The Totally Football Show, you can sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash totally, all in lowercase. So go to shopify.com slash totally to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. That's S-H-O-P-I-F-Y dot com slash totally. On Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Smart Speaker and now ad-free on The Athletic, this is The Totally Football Show with Matt Davis-Adams. The second round of fixtures kicks off appropriately enough with Group A. First up, it's Turkey versus Wales in Baku. We'll get to Wales imminently, but here to talk Turkey is Jordi Yamali of ESPN. Jordi, four days have passed since that opening night horror show against Italy. What's the mood amongst Turkey supporters now? I guess this, uh, yeah, around the supporters, it's really bad. But in the training camp with the, with the team, it's all good vibes and relaxation. Uh, we saw the press conference today. There was nothing. Uh, the the first game, 
Uh, they say, yeah, it, it, Italy was great. Uh, it's possible. Nothing's changed. We have to win against Wales. But I'm, yeah, I'm really scared about the game tomorrow after the game against Italy. Well, if, it, if it's good vibes around the camp, then does that mean that we're not likely to see wholesale changes to the starting lineup? He made the suggestion he will start with the same lineup, even so, uh, he won't make any changes, uh, big changes. If it's uh, it's only one or two, maybe uh, the, the players who started really bad, like Yusuf Yasuje, I think he's the only option for him to be changed. Well, Turkey didn't even manage to get a shot on target against Italy. So if, they, if they're playing with the, the same starting eleven or, or pretty much, how, how do they try and get Barak Yilmaz some some service? Because it, it's one thing having a great striker, but if he's not getting the ball, he can't put the ball into the net. Uh, that's true. However, they played this type of uh, uh, of, of play against uh, uh, yeah in recent times against uh, Holland, and they beat them really easily. So. We have to keep in mind that Italy was really strong that day. Italy was really great that day. And most importantly, uh, uh, defending the counterattacks. And if they start defending those, yeah, then you see Turkey uh, can't do anything else. There's no plan B. And this selection, yeah, he can make, he make, he can make changes or he can make, or he can change the formation. But there is not much possible with this team. It's only this type of game they have. Now, we know there's going to be 35,000 supporters in attendance. It's effectively a home game for Turkey. Tell us a bit about the close links between Turkey and, and Azerbaijan, because many of our listeners won't know about the uh, the relationship between the two countries and, and how that's going to work in your favour, you, you would hope, in this match. Yeah, they're, they're really uh, making a lot of rumours about that, like it's a home game and uh, it's our brother country. They almost speak the same language and everything. And they're saying that the game in Italy was like a real, really like a away game. I think it was decent. It was filled, but it was not that impressive. But they're, yeah, they're really aiming at a lot of home support. And yeah, if you know Turkish football a little bit, they need that home support a lot. So yeah, the, the, it's, it's like a brother country. You mentioned kind of the fervent nature of, of the home support. Is there any chance that that might work against Turkey if they don't start well? Would the supporters ever turn on them and, the, and then the, the pressure kind of increases? Or, or is that just not how it's going to work? They'll, they'll back them, whatever. They will back them, whatever. It's, it's, uh, now it's a tournament. I only remember like when it was the era of Abdullah Avcı. Uh, it was a really terrible error for the Turkish national team. They tried to do some modern football and he was playing really defensively. And in the end, there was no attendance and there were fights on the, on, on the stands between the rival supporters from the clubs. So it has to be like in a really, really terrible situations for them to, uh, don't back them up anymore. And so, yeah, you know, Turkey, they have, they've beaten teams in the last second. They came, uh, they came uh, around from 2-0 against Czech, uh, Czech Republic. So there's always that small part of hope that they will support them till the end. Finally then, you said you were nervous. Give us a prediction for the game. Are Turkey going to get the win that, that they probably need here? Uh, I, was, I wasn't really impressed by Wales until they get behind. And with the pressure and the home support, maybe. And yeah, the scenario is like do or die for them. And Turkey is always the, the best in that situation. So I go with a small win after the terrible start. Uh, 2-1 for Turkey. Fighting talk there from Jordi, Tom. Uh, this is your right to reply. Are you going to stuff the Turks? Um, I mean, I would love to retort uh, by saying that he's completely wrong about Wales's performance against Switzerland. Uh, but I wasn't very impressed by it either. I don't think anyone was. Uh, Wales were extremely fortunate to emerge from that game with a draw. Uh, and yeah, it, it's, um, it has the feel of a, a must-win game uh, in true tournament cliché. I mean, Wales have the advantage, well, Wales have the potential advantage of playing their last game against Italy. And if Italy beats Switzerland later on Wednesday, they'll already be through. So they might rest players, they might allow Wales to win. Uh, but it would be nice not to have to not to have to rely on a favour from Roberto Mancini. So yeah, Wales basically have to win this. But if they do win this, then you know that's them into the last sixteen. Uh, and I think what I'd what I'd like to see is a bit more a bit more control from Wales. I mean, it, it's taken a long time to get used to the idea that Wales are actually good at football. 
um, because for most of my life, they were really, really not good at football. And one of the lovely things in recent years has been that every time you watch Wales, you know you're going to get a certain level of control, a certain level of composure. You didn't really get that against Switzerland. It wasn't that Wales haven't played on the counter-attack before because they play on the counter-attack quite a lot. But it was every time they had the ball, they didn't really seem to, you know, they didn't really look after it very well. So, yeah, lots of uh, lots of pressure on Wales going into this. And what what about the team? I guess the, the goalie issue's kind of settled now, and it Danny Danny Ward did so well that you think he'd start. Kiefer Moore obviously scored, so you think he'll he'll start up front there. Might I suggest that bringing Ethan Ampadu in for a half fit Joe Allen might give you that bit more control in midfield? You took the words right out of my mouth. I would definitely be looking to bring in Ethan Ampadu. Um, I'm not sure I'd necessarily bring him in for Joe Allen. Joe Allen's legs do not carry him around the pitch quite as quickly as as they once did. But uh, the Allen-Ampadu midfield axis was what Wales's successful qualifying campaign was was built on. Although Joe Morrell has done very well of late, set up Kiefer Moore's goal in the game against Switzerland. I think that I think that Ampadu and Allen uh, would have uh, a bit more a bit more sophistication as a partnership. Because what I mean one of the things that really leapt out from a defensive perspective in that opening game was the ease with which Switzerland were able to play the the play passes into the feet of their strikers each of whom basically pinned their their markers in the Wales back four. And that's how Switzerland constructed a lot of their attacks. And I think that was partly a a tactical issue, going sort of man for man against the team playing a front two. But I also think that a a slightly more well-equipped defensive midfield pairing would have cut out more of those passes. Um, And, you know, Ethan Ampadu has shown... Time and time again for Wales that you know that he's he's perfectly at ease at this level. You look at other players you could come in. You know David Brooks, Harry Wilson, Tyler Roberts. There, there are lots of high quality alternatives on the Wales bench. But I think perhaps the most important thing for Wales in this game is is not necessarily bringing players in, but it's for Aaron Ramsey and, and Gareth Bale to, to turn up. They were both really disappointing against Switzerland. You know, Dan James was Wales' liveliest attacker. Kiefer Moore gets the goal that that's, that rescues a point and and you know and looked dangerous when he when he had opportunities. And I mean, I'd loathe to ever criticise Gareth Bale and Aaron Ramsey given everything that they've done for Wales in you know in in the last ten years or so. But they you know they they really didn't perform in that game against Switzerland. And I think if if Wales are going to get anything out of this Turkey game, if they're going to get the win that they need to take them into the knockout rounds. Um, they're going to need at least one of those players to to produce the sort of performance they're capable of. Adam, Yordi told us that the mood in the Turkey squad was buoyant, which was which I was slightly surprised by. Who are you? Who are you? Who are you less disappointed by in their opening game of Turkey and Wales? I mean, Turkey were were pretty terrible, weren't they against it? I mean, Turkey were my biggest disappointment. Um, of of the first round of, of fixtures. I mean, purely because I'd read so much about what a young, vibrant, exciting team they they were developing um, over the last couple of years, and they had beaten Holland in the not so distant past as well. Um, and I thought they were dreadful against um, Italy the other night. Absolutely dreadful. Uh, the pressing was awful. They had no intensity to their play. There was no real creativity. I, I I mean, I then watched Russia play against Belgium the next night, and it. it I thought they were pretty similar in terms of the standard. So I'm sure Turkey have different levels. Um, the one slightly enjoyable thing is that if you combine Turkey, Hungary and Russia and that presidents Erdogan, Putin and Orban, they are currently losing 9-0 on aggregate after one <laughs> round of games. Um, so it is a victory for social democracy, if nothing else. <laughs> Lovely stuff. Um, it'll be the first time that these two teams have met, by the way, since August 1997, World Cup qualifier in Istanbul, Turkey won 6-4. Hakan Suker got four of them. Robert Page was playing centre-back. Robbie Savage scored a screamer. And Neville Southall played the last of his 92 games for Wales. He was hooked at half-time by Bobby Gould. Just get it away, but Savage! Oh! What a strike! A full-blooded volley by Robbie Savage. There is one more game in Group A on Wednesday. It's Italy against Switzerland after their stunning opening night win. Italy returning to Rome. A win will take them through to the knockout stages. Only one man we can turn to for the latest on the Azuri. That's right, it's time for the horn section. Here is James Horncastle. The question marks going into this game are at right back because Alessandro Florenzi went off at half-time 
against Turkey. So uh, there is a uh, a little bit of a, a duel going on in training as to whether it should be the guy who came on for him and did well, Giovanni Di Lorenzo from Napoli, or it should be Raphael Toloi, um, who's only recently become an Italy international. And then there's, uh, again, people want to know about the fitness of Marco Verratti because Verratti is probably the best player on this Italy team, certainly has been, along with Jorginho and Insigne, the one that uh, Mancini has built this national team around. And he was missing from the first game because he has this knee injury, uh, which he picked up towards the end of the season with PSG. And uh, it feels like he's made great strides forward in training over this week. Maybe not enough to start, but Mancini's considering whether to, to put him on the bench. But apart from that, I think it will be more or less the same team uh, that we've seen, uh, that we saw in the opening game. Tom, with your Welsh hat on, which, as we all know, are those tall black pieces of millinery first propagated by Augusta Hall, the Baroness Lanover. Uh, you'll be you'll be rooting for Italy here. As we say, they can make things much easier for you on match day three. And they ought to as well, haven't they? We, we didn't see a load from Switzerland to suggest that they're going to trouble a team that played as well as Italy did in the first game. Yeah, I mean, Switzerland are quite an obdurate side. They're quite a mature side. You know, a lot of these players have been together for a long time. They came through the youth system at the same time. This is, you know, basically Switzerland's golden generation. And I'm not sure we're going to see any spectacular flowering of this team at this tournament. But they were, you know, they they felt like they were a level above Wales, which was quite worrying given that Wales have generally competed quite well um, in, uh, you know, competitive internationals in recent years. So I think Italy will find it tougher going against Switzerland than uh, against uh, Turkey. Having said that, there is now pressure on Switzerland, having not been able to turn their their dominance of that game in uh, against Wales into a victory uh, so that could play in Italy's favor Marco Verratti is fit unlikely to start I think but might feature at some point and I'm really hoping that he gets a chance to make a mark on this tournament obviously didn't play at the last World Cup because Italy weren't there was ruled out of Euro 2016 right on the eve of the tournament so we've not yet seen uh, Marco Verratti uh, make a mark at a big tournament and he, he's such a wonderful player and what's what one of the most enjoyable things for me about the, the Roberto Mancini era is that Verratti is finally an important player for his national team he's finally one of the guys who makes them tick so uh, yeah that's uh, that's one thing to look out for from an Italy perspective. Adam, Tom says that, that Switzerland are obdurate. I think that's polite. I would say mind-numbingly dull. They could become the first nation ever to draw five games in a row at, at the Euros. Um, neutral to a fault. Don Fifield was saying yesterday how much he likes Sweden. Lots of people have a, a favourite other team. Mm. Are Switzerland yours? Are they anybody's? Does anybody have any strong feelings about the Switzerland national football team who is not Swiss? Yeah. Roy Hodgson. <laughs> Roy Hodgson, yeah, very like strong feelings. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, slightly different case. Um, no, I mean, Swiss, you're right about Swiss neutrality um, and why I think we find them quite uninteresting, I suppose, as a country. And it's the best quote about this is when Orson Welles spoke these lines as Harry Lyme, the villain at the heart of the third man from 1949. And he said, in Italy, for 30 years under the Borgias, they had warfare, terror, murder and bloodshed. But they produced my, uh, Michelangelo, Leonardo da Vinci in the Renaissance. In Switzerland, they had brotherly love, 500 years of democracy and peace. And what did that produce? The cuckoo clock. So, unfortunately, peace doesn't bring that much creativity or innovation. Sounds like Roman Abramovich justifying his next managerial sack. <laughs> <laughs> no comment. Uh, listener, you thought that the level of intellect would, would drop on this show in Jimbo's absence. <laughs> you were wrong. Um, one more game for us to preview. Russia will have home advantage when they take on Finland in St. Petersburg in Group B. And no team's won their first two matches at the Euro since Croatia in 1996. That's what Finland are hoping to do. They've got a 100% conversion rate at the tournament. One shot, one goal. Um, Adam, we haven't heard much about the impact of the Christian Christian Eriksen thing on, on Finland. Surely their players will also have been traumatised. You'd hope that they've been offered some sort of counselling or, or some kind of help through through what they went through as well. Yeah, I mean, and, and the further we get away from that game on, on, on Saturday night, the more ridiculous it seems that 
the 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 choice that was presented to the, to both the Danish and fin, Finnish players. You know, this choice of we either play on at eight thirty UK time or we come back in the morning and play at noon. So as you know, I would presume so as not to disturb the TV schedules for the rest of the day or for the next day. And it, it's completely baffling to me that, that that those were the choices presented. And the further we come away from it, the further you know you just think it was completely inhumane. Not, and not only for the Danish players, for the Finnish players as well. I mean, there were Finnish players that were in tears um, in the dressing room as well. I think their captain, uh, Tim Spav, spoke very well in a column in the Daily Mail um, on Sunday about just, just the impacts on, on them as well, saying that they were up until three or four in the morning after the game, just talking about it amongst themselves, almost like an in-group counselling session between the players. Um, but you know, it also worked out reasonably well for them in that they played on, they won the game, um, they got their first ever win um, in, a first, in their first game at a tournament. So really great result for them and it gives them a huge chance of qualifying, um, which I don't think anyone would have expected. As for Russia, Tom, they, they look really poor against Belgium. Was that just because Belgium were good? Would you expect them to, to be a lot better than, than what we saw on match day one here? It's hard to say, really. I mean, they were absolutely dreadful. They were awful. They put me in mind of the the Russia team who we saw at Euro 2016. And albeit in between, you know, they had that fantastic run at, at the 2018 World Cup on, on home soil. But yeah, that they, uh, they looked a pretty weak team. I've gleaned from uh, Sasha Gurionov's Twitter feed that their tactical approach to the game was something of a surprise. They went for a, a 4-4-2, uh, which I don't think they'd they tested out in their their warm-up games um, and looked a little bit more comfortable once they they switched to a back five. I feel like every Russia team of the past 20 years has, has played with some variation on a back five. So, yeah, whether whether that's something that um, that they'll revert to for this game, uh, I guess we'll, we'll have to wait and see. But, yeah, I, you know, obviously home advantage, their record against Finland historically is very good. So, you know, it shouldn't be beyond them to get a positive result uh, in this game and, and, and keep their tournament alive. I was, though, uh, sad to note that Yuri Zhirkov has been ruled out of the tournament, not only because his name makes everyone uh, smile, <laughs> but as a 37-year-old footballer myself, I'm always encouraged to see 37-year-old players who would appear to be past their best disproving the cynics and, and the doubters. So uh, I wish Yuri Jerkov a speedy recovery. Yeah, I guess it would have been slightly more palatable if it was a, a wrist injury. Uh, we will have Gurionov the Great on the pod tomorrow to celebrate slash commiserate whatever Russia do. Right, we're heading towards added time on today's show. But first, let's get some odds from Paddy Power and head over to producer Ben. Thank you very much, MDA. I'm on the line with Jason Murphy from Paddy Power. And Jason, let's look ahead to a couple of Wednesday's games, starting with Italy versus Switzerland. Can the Swiss get anything from this game with the Azzurri? Of course they can. Every team has a chance for 5-1 to one to actually beat them. But for me, I'd be reluctant. Uh, the only threat Switzerland had against Wales was Mbolo picking up the ball on the halfway line and turning and running at Italy. But Switzerland won't have the territory possession to do that. And if he does do that... Italy will be cynical enough to stop him. And the only other advantage Switzerland had offensively was at set pieces, given Wales' lack of height. But with the likes of Benucci and Collini, Switzerland aren't going to get any joy there. So for me, Italy, they've won their last nine games. They've won the nine of them to nil. So Italy to win this game to nil is about five to four. And based on what we've seen from both teams in the opening games, I think that's a better angle for this game. Okay, on to Turkey versus Wales, Jason. And uh, I'm after a bet builder for this one, please. Can you price me up a goal for Yilmaz in a Turkey win with a yellow card for Demiral and three or more goals in the 90 minutes? Yeah, so first and foremost, the goal for Yilmaz, it's 7-4. to four. He didn't really get run against Italy the other night, but he's had a fantastic season in France. If he scores, Turkey are more likely to win. That's 13-10 to 10 to get a Turkey win. And they actually need a result here. And that's partly what Pleasant a nice angle under three or more goals in this game because given the goal difference the heavy defeat against Italy Turkey can't be sitting back or sitting for a nil-nil here they need to win this game and they need to get a few goals as well and the last angle there is a nice interesting one Demiral to be booked he'll play on the right side of the centre-backs with Soyuncu and if you look at Daniel James the way he ran against the Swiss 
Fabian Schaar had to pick up a booking against him. So Yunchu was booked the other night, so he's less likely to be making a silly foul, whereas Demarle is 11-4 to 4 to be carried at any time. So those four legs in a bet builder with Paddy Power comes to 33-1. to 1. But the best angle I give you for this game, if you're interested, that Wales lack of height at the back that we alluded to, I mean, you've Ben Davis playing as a centre back. He's five foot eleven. That's below average. We've seen Roberts marking. He's only five foot eight and, and bowl off for the goal the other day. Have a look at Sayunchu coming up from the back. He's about sixteen to one to score any time. Leave it at that. The Totally Football Show, sponsored by Paddy Power. Place a four plus fold bet builder on any football match and get money back as a free bet if one leg lets you down. Check paddypower.com for more details. Ten pound max free bet. T's and C's apply. Eighteen plus. BeGambleAware.org. Listener, you can sign up for a subscription to The Athletic for unrivaled coverage of Euro 2020 in 2021. All the articles with people like Adam, all the podcasts, ad-free and Q&As with writers. It's only a pound a month for your first six months. Head to theathletic.com slash totally. On this day in Euro's history, the 16th of June, at Euro 2000, France booked their place in the knockout stages courtesy of a 2-1 win. Against the Czech rep, France's team, ludicrously good, almost unfairly so. Turam, Desai, Blanc, Deschamps, Zidane, Petit, Vieira, Henri and Anelka amongst the starters. Uh, ludicrously good team with loads of strength in depth. Plus Sachange, indeed. Uh, Tom, as well as Deschamps, Blanc's also since managed France. Zinedine Zidane presumably will do at some point in the future as well. Yeah, it's you know another thing to... Um to envy slash hate France for is that not only do they have you know the world's preeminent national coach in charge at the moment but that as and when he decides to move on which as things stand will be after the 2022 World Cup in Qatar then they've got you know the only man to have won three consecutive Champions Leagues in the 21st century ready to to step in and and take over um so yeah that uh that kind of coaching uh, lineage would appear to be in fine fettle. But it's interesting going back to that tournament. I wrote a piece recently looking at sort of some of the parallels between the current team and, and the Euro 2000 team. And one thing you notice about France's approach to that tournament was they changed their tactics and they changed their personnel, particularly in midfield and attack, between every game. Um, and even though, you know, in modern football, there's an acceptance that, you know, top teams need tactical flexibility and and need to use their squads i think i think we can still sometimes be a little bit too reluctant to relinquish this idea of a first choice 11 and and a team having to have you know a set way of playing um and i think one thing that france showed at that tournament was if you've got that amount of talent in your squad uh, it pays to to mix things up and yeah not that i'm necessarily expecting deshaun to start uh to start coming out with some uh, some free form uh, tactical uh, experiments, but uh, yeah, a little um, little reminder of the the importance of uh, keeping things fresh. Adam, you are infuriatingly young. Uh, Euro two thousand around that time. What were you working on? Joined up writing, learning about shapes, that kind of thing. I think it probably was joined up writing. I'd been given my first pen. That was what they did in that um, year. What would I have been in year one? year two um so i'd been received my first uh, pen from the teacher so i started doing joined up writing but i, I remember it for two reasons one just sort of being fascinated by this country called yugoslavia that obviously no longer exists in, in that form although we've seen i suppose the continued fallout of yugoslavia um with the with what's gone on with marco and Alcevic over the last few days but the the other thing i do just grimly remember is the phil neville challenge that is just embedded in my mind. Up against Phil Neville and outpacing Phil Neville who dives in and gives away a penalty. And it's not an image that's like been through repeats through the years. It's just my image of sat in that school sports hall um, on this that TV that would get wheeled in and Phil Neville making that lunge and England losing against Romania. Um, so that's my abiding memory. And then golden goal. Golden goal was very exciting. Um, Everyone, everyone seems to have decided it was a really bad thing. I think it was a lot of fun um, and I would like it to, to actually come back. You kind of forget that England beat Germany at that tournament and we got one of the great Clive Tilsley lines. His, his opener was, are you sitting comfortably? Me neither. Um, a man who's still going strong. 
21 years later. Uh, speaking of Euro 2000, did you know The Athletic have a whole series of pods on past tournaments? It's called Euro Stories. The latest episode is all about the tournament co-hosted by Belgium and the Netherlands. The great Ian McIntosh plays host and the pod features some of your favourite Totally folk, including Lindsay Hooper, Raphael Honigstein, Julian Laurent and Alvaro Romeo. Get it wherever you get your podcasts or ad free on The Athletic. That's just about it for today, but the fact that we've now seen every team at least once means that we should probably draw some rash conclusions from the first round of fixtures. Um, Tom, is there anything in particular that's, that stood out to you after, after we've seen every team play? Um, I think decent, decent standard of football, some entertaining games. The only really disappointing game that I've sat through so far was Spain-Sweden. And in terms of the standout teams, I mean, yeah, I think France confirmed a lot of the things we thought about them pre-tournament. Portugal kind of got there in the end. Uh, Italy and Belgium, obviously very impressive. Uh, Netherlands, Ukraine, uh, game of the tournament so far. And again, confirmed a lot of the things we thought about the Netherlands. Very good going forward. Not so good uh, at the other end of the pitch. And yeah, obviously Patrick Schick's goal against Scotland. Uh, obviously, you talk about great European Championship goals. And I suppose one thing that didn't have was... Uh, you know, great significance in terms of being scored in one of the knockout rounds, but in terms of quality, it, it's got to be it's got to be top five, I'd say. Adam, you'll have been making David Marshall memes all day, I'm sure. Mm. Uh, anything else that that you've learned from this first round of games? I, I think I can now actually say with sincerity, rather than a sort of a mocking thing, that I do think England have a decent chance. And Tom Smirk is is rising as as I say that, but. Um, <laughs> I, I do, and I think even having watched France tonight, you know, I don't look at that many teams and think they've got no chance in a knockout game against them. So I, I'm quite uh, buoyed by by that from an England perspective, um, possibly delusional as well. And, and I think, I mean, the other thing I'll say, I think Wales will still surprise people a little bit and come back quite strong. Um, I think they've got levels to go up um, in the next couple of games and good players that didn't turn up in the first game for them, I think will turn up when their country needs them. That's what they've done over the years. Um, so I think good news for the home nations, unless you happen to be Scottish. Yeah, here's to, here's to a Wales-England final. <laughs> I mean, actually, here's, no, I, I take that back. That would be horrible. <laughs> Producer Abby wants me to include her Rashford conclusions joke because you mentioned England there, but I'm still not... 100%. Yeah, so she's done that very good. I'll chuck in the fact that ITV seem to be absolutely crushing the BBC when it comes to commentary and punditry so far. And I'm not sure that we've ever been able to say that about a tournament before. Um, we'll see if it continues. Anyway, many thanks to Tom, to Adam, to James, to Jordi and to producer Abby for working through the night to get this in your lug holes. First thing for your likely non-existent commute to work. We'll be back same time tomorrow. Until then, from all of us here, Say au revoir. You've been listening to the Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Listen ad free on the Athletic app and discover bonus content by following the Athletic UK Audio Plus on Apple Podcasts. Keep up to date with everything Totally at the Totally Show on Twitter and find out the very latest subscription offers at theathletic.com/slash totally. The Totally Football Show is an Athletic Media Company production and sponsored by Paddy Power. The Athletic.